Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here on this Sabbath day. I hear the choir singing about a bleak midwinter. Makes you feel cold, doesn't it? Somewhere else, probably, I think. It's good to see the Pattersons here. Uh, Elder Patterson. No, no, the other Elder Patterson. The, the Pastor Emeritus Pastor Patterson. The one who's been here twice already. Well, hopefully not a third time, right? And... Um, it's good to have you here. It's also good to, uh, for those of you joining us online this morning. As you can tell, I am not in the chat room, but I want to give a special shout out to mom and dad. Hi, mom and dad. Joining us from Arizona this morning. Got to throw that out there, you know. Got to remember that my parents are always watching. <laughs> it's, it's drilled into me at a very early age. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> let's, uh, let's bow his prayer as we begin this time in his word this morning. Lord, as we look at this story today, as we consider this this narrative that we've heard many times, we've grown up with it, it's been told to us, we've acted it out, it's a part of who we are at this time of year. May we see it with new perspective today, perhaps. May we see it still alive and meaningful in this century, is my prayer in your name. Amen. Well, for the past several years, I've been teaching a, a course called Philosophy of Healthcare at a Florida, Adventist, a Florida Hospital College, now Adventist University of Health Sciences. And this has given me an opportunity to learn about the average college student mind, because the class involves a lot of writing. They have to do a lot of writing journals and tests and, and, and papers that they have to write. And so there's a lot of writing involved in the class, which means I have to do a lot of reading. One of the things I have learned in the process is that there are certain words that students seem to struggle with. And it's not necessarily whether they are students from, uh, you know, where English is not their first language versus English as their first language. I think it's just kind of all, all around, all the time. And I brought some examples for you. Let me show you this first one. This is an example of a sentence that they would perhaps struggle over. They're going to their car over there. They're, they're, there, right? There, as in they are, the contraction going to there, as in possessive car, over there, as in the direction. There, there, and there. Here's another one. The two of us went to the store, two. All right, two. The, the number two went two in the direction, two, as in also. Now, I think part of the reason why my students struggle with these words is that they become used to something called spell check. Spell check says whatever one of those three they type is spelled correctly, even though it's the wrong word. You end up with some rather interesting sentences. This next one is one that healthcare, future healthcare providers really need to get a handle on. If you don't have a patient patient, your grumpy patients require patience. All right? What a difference when you say patient, patient, just having that A in there, right? A patient versus being patient. English is funny like that, isn't it? These are called homonyms, I'm told, or or homophones. My wife tells me that's another word for the same thing. She's the first grade teacher. Apparently they teach kids this in first grade. My college students are still learning it. (laughs) The biblical story that we're going to look at today, though, hinges on some subtleties in English and 
I would conjecture, I would argue, a word, two words that pronounce the same have very different meanings, but have a very, I think, profound lesson about the birth of Christ and why he comes to this world. The passage that we're going to be looking at is found in Luke chapter 1. So take out your paper Bible. You have some of those. Some of you still have those. You know, it's a dead tree thing. Yeah. Take out one of those. If you have one of those, if you don't, there's one in the pew in front of you. If not, do what I do and take out your mobile device and fire up that app. Go to that browser and find Luke chapter 1. This separates those of you who are techies from those of you who refuse. Luke chapter 1, the third gospel, the third book of the New Testament, the third gospel as well. The words at the appropriate time, thanks to Patty Hofer, will magically appear on the screens as well. The setting is this. There is a man by the name of Zechariah. Good biblical name. He's of a priestly lineage. His wife's name is Elizabeth. She is also of a priestly lineage, the line of Aaron. The two of them, we are told by Luke, uh, have several characteristics. They are blameless, righteous, barren, and old. Now, there's a reason why those words are put together by Luke. For you see, at that time, in that age, children were seen as a blessing from God, which we still believe today, right? They're a blessing from God. However, The inverse was also often seen as true. If you didn't have children, you weren't blessed of God because there was something wrong. Not physically, but morally. There might be something you have done. There might be some sort of unrighteousness, if you will. There's something faulty about your life, your experience. Because if you were being blessed of God, then you're a righteous person. But if you're not you won't have children. That's how the logic went. And so Luke is careful to tell us that they are, while they have no children, they are blameless. They are righteous. So Zechariah, as I mentioned, is a priest. He's not a full-time priest. He's a part-time priest. He goes up from his home in the hill country of Judea once a year to take a rotation at the temple. He's part of a group of men that would go there, serve for a period of time, and then go back home and continue with their regular employment. Zechariah is at the temple this particular year, and he has the opportunity to serve in a very esteemed, a very prestigious position. Probably something would have only happened once in his lifetime, if ever. He has been chosen to be the one to go into the holy place and burn the incense on the altar of incense during prayer time. The altar of incense sat right before the veil in the holy place, just before the most holy place. And the smoke of the incense would go up and over the top and into the most holy place. It was a symbol of prayer. This was considered a high honor. So a lot of people were gathered outside while he is inside for this particular ceremony. So he's in there. He's being very careful about what he's doing. He's got the incense burning. The smoke is wafting around. And all of a sudden, there's someone with him. There is another person there in the clouds. And he pauses. He's frightened. I mean, you know, this, this, they're supposed to be there by himself. Who is this person? What are they doing here? Well, the man identifies himself. Turns out it's not a man. It's an angel, a person by the name of Gabriel. And he says, guess what, Zachariah? I am here to bring you good news. You and Elizabeth are going to have a baby. 
let that sink in for just a moment. You are 85 years old. Some of you may actually be 85 years old. Think about that. You and the missus find out you're going to have a baby. How's that going to go down for you, huh? You know, I mean, you thought it was hard at 21. Try it when you're 91, right? I mean, poor Zachariah and Elizabeth, oh, you know, we're going to be 95 when they're in college. We can't keep up with the child now. What are we going to do then? So this good news is kind of not so good news in some respects. But Zechariah is told that they are going to have a son, a son who is going to be very special. So not only is the specialness of the fact that they are going to have a child at old age, but this child is going to be exceptional. He is going to be called to prepare the way for the Lord, to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord. Notice his response to this. It's found in verses 18 to 20 of chapter 1. Zechariah says to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Notice he didn't call her old. Good move. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The question that Zechariah asks is, how shall I know this? Because I am old. The voice of doubt says, I am too old. And the voice of grace replies, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I'm here to bring you good news. In the face of this answer to his prayer, Zechariah just isn't certain that God can really do this. You know, we, it's been all these years, you just, we just, this just can't happen. How will I know this? How, what will be the sign? How can I be sure that you can do this? The problem with Zechariah isn't that he questions the process, but rather that he questions God's ability to do it. You know, in my preparations for this, I found a uh, a, a pastor by the name of John Buchanan, a pastor at the Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago, who's also an editor of Century, uh, Christian Century Magazine. He's written about this whole exchange between Zechariah and the angel, and he calls this the time of Zechariah's barrenness. Remember, Elizabeth was the one who was described as barren. Guess what? Zechariah's the one who's really barren. Because he says that Zechariah could not imagine a future different than the present. He couldn't imagine a future any different than what his present was like. As such, he is the one in the story who ends up being barren. That's a condition we find ourselves in sometimes too. Buchanan goes on to write, this is the barrenness of all of us when over the years we accommodate to the status quo. We stop hoping and expecting and planning and looking forward to the future. The promise of the advent is that God is coming. He's coming with love and healing and hope into your life, whoever you are. God will come with light into whatever darkness you find yourself. He goes on to write, too, that when Zechariah is made mute after this encounter with the angel, that perhaps his silence isn't so much a curse or a punishment as a gift. 
Because given his mental capacity in terms of his frame of thought, he really probably couldn't have explained what happened to him anyway. So he's left silent. Well, as predicted, Elizabeth becomes pregnant. And Luke, Dr. Luke, by the way, tells us that she keeps it hidden for five months. He's the one that tells us about five months and six months and nine months. He's, he's tracking here as a doctor. She keeps it hidden for five months. And Elizabeth says this is because it has been such a reproach in her life to be all of this time and not have children. That when it finally does happen, she's just not ready to talk about it. So she keeps it hidden. And during the sixth month, Gabriel is dispatched again to earth. And this time he shows up at the home of one of Elizabeth's relatives, a young girl by the name of Mary. You've heard of her, perhaps. As before with Zechariah, the appearance of Gabriel causes trouble, consternation. But unlike the appearance at Zechariah's, when Zechariah was spoken to, he was troubled at the appearance of the angel. When Mary was spoken to, she was troubled with what the angel said, not the fact that the angel was there. Because the angel says, guess what, Mary? You are favored of God. You are blessed of God. When you get that kind of message, you know, sometimes maybe we need to be a little bit concerned. Guess what? God's, God thinks you've got great things in store for you. And you're like, okay, what's this going to go to? That's where Mary is at. She's not really sure what this greeting is all about. But apparently the standard reaction when an angel appears is fear. It seems to be the case. You read it in the Bible, that's usually the case. And the message this time, though, is even more fantastical, yes, I made up that word, than the one before. Because, you see, this is a story about two miraculous pregnancies and two very special baby boys. But in the first story, the parents are too old. But in the second pregnancy, the parents aren't even married. Okay? And furthermore, just to complicate matters, how do we say this delicately, Joseph isn't even <clears throat> involved. I'll let you fill in the rest of the details. This is going to be awkward. Verse 34 is Mary's reply. How will this be since I am a virgin? Notice the difference in her question. When Zechariah questioned, he said, how can I know this? When Mary asks the question, she says, how will this be? You notice that difference? Zechariah is casting doubt. He's saying, I'm not really sure that this can happen. Mary, on the other hand, is just not really clear on the process. It's going to happen, okay, but how? Okay, she's not clear at all on the process, all right? And the explanation by the angel is probably not going to help much either, but we'll look at it nonetheless. Verses 35 to 37. The angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Okay, that's the answer. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. And why is all this possible? Because with God, nothing will be impossible. Old couples can have children. People who aren't couples can have children. Try and figure that out. 
The answer that the angel provides is probably not going to give us all of the details that we might want to know about, and that's okay. But Mary is able to believe that it's going to happen, and that's the point. Because with God, nothing will be impossible. So notice Mary's reply back to the angels, very different than Zechariah. Behold, verse 38, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departs. What does Mary do to earn this distinction of being the mother of Christ? She's willing. That's it. She says yes. That's it. Zechariah, he's not so sure. He's doubtful. Mary, fine. If that's what you want, if that's what you want for me, then I'm okay with it. And she gives in, if you will. She is submissive. She's willing to be a disciple of God. Now, there's something that caught my attention here in this situation, this scenario. When Gabriel leaves Zechariah, he is unable to speak. He's silent. He cannot say anything after the angel leaves. And for nine months, the guy is mute. Now, there's some wives out here right now that are going, man, how would that work? Nine months, he can't say a thing? Hmm. Yeah, what about that? Yeah, okay. So, talk about the silent treatment, right? In fact, it implies later in verse 61 that perhaps Zechariah is maybe even deaf as well. Because he doesn't seem to be understanding what people say either. The signal and so forth. So he might have even gotten some deafness in the process. But for nine months, one of the chosen male representatives of God is unable to speak. He has to remain silent. He can't talk about what he has witnessed. He can't explain what the angel said. He can't praise God for the miracle that has happened in his life and in his wife. Meanwhile, over here on the side, First Elizabeth and now Mary, they're not silent. Not only that, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Something is going on in their lives and they can't keep quiet. Pretty soon Mary is singing. So the thing that occurs to my mind is maybe women can be filled with the Holy Spirit and called of God after all. Hmm. wonder about that. Well, Mary packs up her bags. She gets her cosmetic kit together, whatever she needs. She hastily leaves to the hill country of Judea. And there she goes to see Elizabeth, her relative. We don't know exactly what kind of relative. Cousin, aunt, something like that, but just relative. She arrives there, comes into the house of Zechariah, and greets Elizabeth. And Zechariah, he can't say anything. So the women do all the talking. And Elizabeth is the one who gets to reply. And Elizabeth has a reaction in her reply as well. She says that upon hearing Mary's voice, the baby within her leaps for joy. That's an interesting picture, isn't it? Apparently only people who are pregnant can understand that. The baby leaps within her. And then she is filled with the Holy Spirit and she gets all Pentecostal. I mean, this is how I picture it. She gets all Pentecostal and she exclaims with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Woo! This is a women, these women are, they are connecting here. This is a bonding moment, right? Amen. That's right. There's something going on here between these two women. They understand something. This whole mystery of being pregnant without really knowing where it all came from. Something's going on. See, I've never been pregnant. It's true. I've never been pregnant. 
I can't say as I understand how it feels or what exactly goes on, you know, the changes within you, all that kind of stuff. I don't know that. There's some here that probably can tell us about that. But whatever it is like, it is clear that when the Holy Spirit moves and when Jesus begins to break into your life, begins to break into your world, joy and praise start to happen. Things start to get a little excited and excitable. It's something that can't be contained. So if your life does not have joy, does not have praise, maybe you need to let Jesus break in a little bit. Maybe you need to get in touch with the Holy Spirit. Well, all of this Holy Spirit movement on Elizabeth, it rubs off on Mary as well, because now she begins to sing a song. She sings a song that's called the Magnificat, which is the first word of her passage, her, her song in Latin. That's what the first word there is. And we find it in verse 46. And she starts by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's the Magnificat. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You know, we sing a song at Christmas time about whether Mary knew or not. You know, Mary, did you know? Well, it sounds to me like she did. She knows that there is a Savior coming. Doesn't know the details. Obviously, he doesn't know how it's all going to go down. But she knows her Savior is arriving. But think about this. Here is this young girl, probably 15 years of age. For us, we'd be like, what? 15 years old? Getting married? Maybe in some parts of this country, but no, uh 15 years old, she's getting married. She's engaged. But here's the problem. She's engaged, and she's pregnant. In our society today, there's still some stigma around that, but not anything like the one in Mary's day. You know, that was something that you could kill someone for. Morally. I mean, that's, it's without question. Pregnant, not married, end of discussion. But somehow she is able to chart her way through those waters. And to his credit, Joseph is able to as well. Because this isn't just an unwed mother. This is an unwed mother without the fiancé's involvement. Go figure that one out. Imagine the conversation she has with her parents over supper. Guess what, Mom and Dad? Oh, my. How does that go? Or the one with Joseph. Or the one with her friends. Or the ones with her classmates, if she's in school, the ones in the, in the neighborhood, the, the village, the town that they're from. Imagine the looks as she and Joseph travel to Bethlehem. This young woman is able to chart her way through all of that. Talk about awkward. Yeah, that was awkward. And I know that for the last couple of thousand years, there's probably some women who would like to have been able to use her story. I don't know where this baby came from. Must be the Holy Spirit. Guess what? It's only happened once. Hey, good luck trying that one again. Only going to happen one time. And yet here she is, praising God. In the midst of this situation, a very awkward, very socially, relationally awkward, very difficult, perhaps even treacherous in terms of her life situation. And yet here she is as a young girl, able to praise God and to see the blessing that this imposition has upon her. Well, Mary stays with Elizabeth for three months, which is the final trimester of Elizabeth's pregnancy and the first trimester of Mary's pregnancy. And then she returns to a, no doubt, rather bewildered, and as we find out in the Gospel of Matthew, skeptical fiancé, 
who not only doesn't believe Mary, but thinks something must be wrong and I need to get rid of this woman. Something's wrong. But he finally believes the story when the angel, I like to think it's the same angel, shows up again and says, guess what? I told Mary, I told Elizabeth, now I'm telling you, this is from God. And so we arrive on the scene that we're familiar with now. The one of Mary and Joseph, you know, Mary on the donkey, very pregnant, going to give birth at any moment, walking along through the desert. They arrive in Bethlehem. The, the city is full. There's no room in the inn, and there's no place for them to stay. And once again, we find a young Middle Eastern migrant family with nowhere to go. Times don't change much, do they? The birth is recorded in verse, chapter 2, verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So there we have it. That's the birth of Jesus. It's not very glamorous, is it? It's not a whole lot to talk about there. In fact, if anything, it's a bit uh, difficult because Jesus is conceived under these extraordinarily unusual circumstances. It's overshadowed. The whole situation is overshadowed by doubt and question. Jesus was literally born in a barn. Your mother ever tell you, close the door? Were you born in a barn? That never worked for Mary and Jesus because he could always just say, yeah, as a matter of fact, I was born in a barn. He's born to an unwed mother in a time where that stigma would, if anything, be more amplified than it is today. There's nowhere to put the child when he's born, so they put him in a feeding trough, you know, shove the hay aside a little bit, move the cows back, set the child in. He's born to a migrant family that will soon be on the run for their lives. So perhaps this is one reason why Jesus in his later adult life seems to be particularly sensitive to those people who are in less than ideal circumstances, particularly women. Like, for example, the woman who uh, is unclean. She's been bleeding for 12 years. And when she stops, when she touches the hem of his garment, she's healed. But Jesus stops what he's doing. And he says, no, 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 I want to talk to you. You are a daughter. And he restores her back to community, to faith. Or what about the woman who was caught in the act of adultery? But Jesus refuses to condemn her, but instead says, go and sin no more. Then there's the woman who was walking, the widow, who was walking beside the dead body of her only son. And Jesus stops the funeral procession and he says, no, 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 son, wake up, arise, go back with your mother. And then there's that that one time when Jesus encounters that Muslim woman at the, I I mean, that Samaritan woman at the well. And in the course of their conversation, he reveals for the first time that he is the Messiah, the chosen one of God. You see, the story of the birth of Christ is the story of four people being sucked into the greatest story ever told. They are doubtful, skeptical, curious, and completely unable to explain what is going on. They cannot explain it. It's all they can do to keep up. But the arrival of Jesus is going to happen. And it's going to happen in our world. There's nothing to stop it. And the story keeps going. If you keep reading further, you'll find out that the story keeps expanding and more and more people keep being brought into this story. And then eventually it travels to other places and other countries. And finally it arrives at our world today. Still growing, still expanding. Which brings me back to where I started. And this this title and this illustration. 
I want you to draw your attention though to this illustration first, Perry, before you move on, Patty. The um, I want to thank Ray Tates for for um, pointing me to this illustration. It's it's something that was actually created not long ago. Because if you look closely, well, first of all, it's drawn. You know, Mary is depicted in sort of the classical uh, Madonna, Mary, Mother of Jesus style with the with the various layers of fabric and so forth. But look in her hands. What's she got there? Huh? You've seen one of those? Some of you have. That is a home pregnancy test kit. Yep. If Mary were and Jesus were to arrive in our day and age, that is the moment when Mary realizes, finds out there's that plus sign on that pregnancy test that says, guess what? Your world is ready to change, like it or not. You are pregnant. That is the moment. And that's how I see it today. So, there are two words, though, that I mentioned already. There's the one, born, B-O-R-N, which is what we use quite often. But there's another spelling for the word born, and it means something very different. The word born, B-O-R-N-E, with an E, is in Old English. It's an older English word that we don't use much anymore. It means to carry or to lift. You can see this word being used in the, the book of Isaiah, for example, Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. There's the same word again. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He has borne our griefs. What are your sins? What are your griefs? What are your iniquities? Maybe there's one word that describes them. Maybe it's a category. Maybe it's a term. Maybe it's a list of words. Maybe it's a sentence, a paragraph, a chapter. A whole naughty book full of lurid and embarrassing tales. What is it? Because he was born, he has borne our sins. Isaiah tells us that the coming Messiah has also carried or borne our sorrows. So what are your sorrows today? Is it perhaps the guilt from those sins we were just mentioning a minute ago, those mistakes in your life? Maybe it's the sorrow of a failed or failing relationship. Maybe at this holiday time of year, it's the sorrow over someone who won't be at the table, someone who won't be under the tree unwrapping gifts. You see, not only was he born, but he has borne all of those failures, all of those mistakes, all of those regrets, all of those shortcomings, all of those sorrows. He has carried them. He has borne them in his arms. He has carried them and buried them deep in the sea of his grace into the ocean. There's other, one other born to consider as well. You see, one day, because Jesus was born and because he has borne, he is going to, for those, of who, for those who have died, they're going to be born again as well. And then they are going to be born up into the clouds. And those of us who are alive and remain, we will also be born again and born up into the clouds. At the resurrection, we will be born and be born. Why? Because he was born and he has born and that makes all the difference in the world. Amen.